0: Hi there and welcome to Drones On Air. I'm your host, Ryan Kant, CEO and founder of EnviroDrones. Our podcast today is called Sea Turtle Day with Drones, which is a special feature for World Sea Turtle Day. We have a special guest joining us, Elizabeth Bevin. Miss Bevin never lost her fascination for the sea. She earned a degree in marine biology at Florida International University. Then, the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill brought her to Alabama. And the doctorate program in the UAB College of Arts and Science Department of Biology where she studied sea turtles with her mentor professor Thane Wibbles. In this episode we will talk about commercial fishing pollution and environmental stressors that have devastated sea turtle populations all over the planet. Please join us for an exhilarating flight on air through drone exploration discovery and innovation. All right. Thanks, Elizabeth, for joining us on the show. Just so tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And so the first thing that I get in every, every opportunity to speak to any group of people has been the turtle girl. That's, that's (laughs) always the label that I get. And you know, that's actually, that's not misplaced. I've definitely had a long standing relationship with turtles and the turtle community, shall we say, but I'm originally from South Florida so all of my interactions as a kid were all based around like anything you could do out in the ocean, anything you could do in our backyard pretty much. So like part of Sea Grant, part of 4-H, my parents homeschooled me. So our our science lessons, our classroom lessons all centered around being outside and just getting involved. And of course that involved going out to do some of the turtle releases and helping to move some of the eggs, helping to... to go through some of the nests, all, all down on South Florida, where they get tons and tons of nests every year. So that was definitely part of my upbringing. But I'm, I kind of branched out and, and pursued marine biology in general. So I went to Florida International University. And so that was, that was my background, was more broadly marine biology. And I finished my bachelor's. And then I said, I'm done. School, no more. Yeah. No more. I want to see it in my rearview mirror, and that's it. So I went to work for an ecological consulting company on the Treasure Coast, which is basically from centered around um, Jensen Beach or Stewart, Florida. So okay. it's kind of south of Cape Canaveral and north of West Palm Beach. Okay. And they do any and all biological sampling, monitoring um, that you can that you can think of. It's all contract based. So that was an interesting world. It was the private private sector and I did all of their field sampling. Pretty much anything that they came that they had that came in I was able to to go out and sample that and that was more turtle work. Mm -hmm. So during the turtle season there was more turtle monitoring and all kinds of fun stuff. You know, the the not so glamorous part of like hanging from your waist deep into a giant hole in the sand looking for eggs covered in bugs in the middle of the summer. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Fair enough. <laughs> so um, then the oil spill happened and I found myself for the first time ever in the true south, Mobile, Alabama. And I had previously thought I was a southerner and then I realized I was not. So I came to Mobile and I was like, hey, here I am. And we worked the oil spill. That was a, a really interesting perspective of what an emergency response looks like, a national disaster. So mm-hmm. um, got to work that for a while from the okay. sea turtle angle. And that kind of led into graduate school. So it took me a year and a half to find a, a home for my graduate studies, but okay. I realized that without a higher degree, I wasn't going to be able to get the more permanent-based position and the more, more involvement and responsibility for research, directing okay. research, that, that I knew that I really wanted. So okay. that's, it's, it just so happened that out of all of the schools I contacted, uh, which, again, over that year and a half was quite a number of schools, that UAB, University of Alabama at Birmingham, in Birmingham, Alabama, okay. working with sea turtles was the one thing that worked out. Cool. And the first thing I got from everybody was, you know, there are a um, limited number of turtles in Birmingham, Alabama, sea yeah. turtles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yes, yes, I know that. So <laughs> that, so that's kind of led into to the research that I've been doing for the last – about seven years since I've been working at this now. I did a master's yeah. and then a PhD, and I just finished that about two weeks ago, just wrapped up awesome. my PhD, and Congrats. I'm now trying to figure out what does life hold next.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's amazing. It, I guess it kind of makes sense, like, if, El, you know, hat doesn't have very many turtles, to be able to use UAV to, to kind of, like, look for them, you know, it seems like an efficient method to, to scout and, and trying to identify yeah. them, so that's really cool. And before we jump into the UAV stuff, I guess what I'm really interested in, you mentioned that you you helped out with the oil spills um, I'm kind of interested to learn, you know, that like when the environmental catastrophe occurs, like it, it's devastating to the ecosystem. And you kind of having feet on the ground when that all occurred. I'd, I'd love to hear kind of what the, uh, the impact it had on, particularly the sea turtle populations, and kind of the experience that you you, you kind of took away from everything that happened at that time.
1: So the what, one of the biggest things that that was. The most obvious about the oil spill was the fact that over a two year period of time, I I worked the initial oil spill response, and then the following year, I I continued and, and worked some of the restoration. That, so they moved from emergency response into the beginnings of restoration. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things that I saw was the evolution of the protocols that they used. So initially when we got there, it was kind of like nobody knew what was happening and it just kind of, everything went. Mm-hmm. And um, and then slowly there were more and more regulations that were put on onto it. So mm-hmm. when, it, when it first happened, everybody was initially preparing for all the oil to come and, and completely blanket all the shores in Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and, and even Florida to some extent. But I was out there as a sea turtle stranding and response um, coordinator. So I was helping a team of only about three. There were three three people, three biologists who were sent out there on behalf of Fish and Wildlife Service to respond to any and all oiled turtle calls. So we did see a lot of oiled turtles coming in. Um, most everything that we got was was already dead. So it had died offshore and had Mm. washed in. And so part of what we were responsible for doing was making sure that all the samples were taken and were cataloged so that a vet somewhere in in Gainesville was able to take a look at, did it die because of natural causes? Did it die because of boat strikes? Did it die because of oil ingestion or oil, uh, you know, oil, some sort of oil impact, something like that. Mm. So we did see a lot of oil turtles. The biggest response then came towards the sea turtle hatching season when all of the nests start hatching on the gulf coast Mm -hmm. all of a sudden the biologist said oh so they're going to be hatching and swimming directly into really oily waters and those oily this was around the time where we were seeing reports of people rounding up the oil rounding up the oil seagrass and setting it on fire (laughs) so there were there were lots of problems, and so they, they made the call to move all the sea turtle nests on the Gulf Coast to put them on a FedEx truck. This was an unprecedented event, oh, wow. by the way. It was, yeah. it was phenomenal to watch this yeah. and to be a part of it. Yeah. They stuck it on a special FedEx truck that then drove from the Gulf Coast all the way over to the East Coast to release the turtles. Oh, <laughs> so. It was it That's was a saying. massive endeavor, and I was really proud to be a part of that. Yep. Um, it made a lot of people upset, but it was mm-hmm. it was a huge impact, regardless of which side of that line you stood on, whether you were for it or against it. It was yeah. a huge impact, and I think that was an interesting thing to watch.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it's interesting though, like if they they traveled that far across the country to be then released in another area. Like their migration patterns, like you know, like how you know animals have instincts and like knowing where they need to swim. It, I feel like it would really throw them for a curve. And they're trying to figure it all out for themselves, um, so it's it's interesting.
1: Yeah, it, it, it was it was interesting, and, and honestly, trying to figure out what impact that's going to have on which of those turtles then don't come back to the beaches they were originally laid on. Yeah. I don't think that that's something that we're really going to have an answer to because they're such long-lived creatures that yeah. you're going to have to wait 20 to 30 years before you see any of those individuals come back. I know yeah. there were some efforts to mark those turtles, yeah. but, um, yeah, that's that's a hard thing to assess. Yeah, um, so definitely. when they were looking for assessments of the impact of the oil spill, it was something more immediate. Yeah, <laughs> <yeah>.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. So at that time, was there anyone even using drones to try to assess the coastal habitat and trying to map to see like the impact that 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 still had occurred, or do you weren't you weren't um, involved or heard of anything that may have been occurring on that front? I'm just kind of curious to see like if, if at that time there was even people kind of using the technology in that method that would be really beneficial to be able to determine how impacted that 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 uh, coastal line had been.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I know I know now. That there were definitely people in other fields that were using drones, using them for um, the sediments, uh, migration of sediment, the subsidence of, of wetlands, things like that. There were definitely people who were looking at more, more habitat mapping type studies, mm-hmm. but in the sea turtle world, in terms of using drones specifically for monitoring sea turtles, that wasn't a thing that was even talked about. It, mm-hmm. If it was happening, it was on the very, very low scale, I had no clue. I was definitely not involved in it. Yep. And, my involvement or introduction to drones in general came years later.
0: Yeah, so you so you finally were introduced to drones when you when you started um, your PhD. Um, yeah. So tell us kind of like that experience when you started, just starting to, to play around with the UAVs. Um, you know, what was that like? And what was the, the drone that you were using at the time that just kind of like got you um, kind of like a little bit of a foundation?
1: Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness. So the beginning of – our introduction to drones was probably one of the most hilarious things now that I look back on it. So at the time, it was in 2014, and I know this because I was I was actually not in Birmingham, Alabama. I was up in Washington, D.C. doing a coastal marine policy fellowship, the Canals Fellowship. And so I was in D.C. for a year, but I was still... graduate student. So I was flying on my weekends, flying down to Brownsville, Texas, so that then we could drive into Mexico to our study site for the Kemp's Ridley Sea Turtle at Rancho Nuevo. And it's on the Gulf Coast, about five hours south of Matamoros or Brownsville. And I flew in and my advisor shows up with this box. And it looks like a toy, like a toy helicopter, but not quite a helicopter. It's a weird boxy thing. It's like mm-hmm. it was the Phantom, just the plain old Phantom, not even a number, just the plain old Phantom. Oh. And this was the one that didn't have a camera. You had to get a GoPro and attach the little GoPro to it. Wow. So you couldn't see anything in real time. It was just hoping that you hit it the right, right spot. So, yeah. so he shows up and says, hey, look at this fun toy. Isn't this cool? And I said, what is this? <laughs> what yeah. is this? What are we doing with this? And he said, well, it's kind of, it's my Christmas present. I said, to who? To me. Okay. <laughs> so it's a Christmas present. So this was, this was the how I was introduced to this. It was, I was very skeptical. And the first thing we did was we decided we were going to see if we could just line up the drone and follow a turtle off the beach as it was, as, as it was finished nesting, follow it off into the water. Now, at that particular location in, in the Gulf of Mexico, the water is extremely murky. It looks like chocolate milk. Okay. So once the turtle, which also happens to be light tan in color, mm-hmm. enters the water, unless it's at the surface breathing, you basically lose the thing entirely. Aww. But we were actually able to catch it surfacing multiple times. Ooh. We saw we were able to see bird attacks on hatchlings, so then, mm. you know, we... Another experiment, we took a whole bunch of hatchlings that were going to be released. We released them once the drone was up in the air, and then we tried to follow them offshore to see where they go, which way are they swimming, how fast do they disperse. Mm-hmm. And it was all preliminary stuff. We just wanted to see how useful could it be. We also used it to see um, how, how deep, through how how uh, we used it to assess water clarity, basically. Okay. How far could we see the turtles beneath the water? Mm-hmm. So we we rigged up this this little setup with a whole bunch of buoys of different colors and we we hung them down with weights down in the water deployed it with a boat it was it was an entire operation just to see if the drone was going to be feasible yeah. or was going to help us in any way
0: yeah yeah and it sounds like it, it sounds like it was some degree like it was exploring kind of new a new road but at least it was the beginning of something that then molded into what you had recently finished to so tell us now the the research that you've just completed how how did it differ like what was the I guess the requirements that you were trying to to, to meet like the methods that you were you were trying to do something slightly different or were you or, or were you, yeah what kind of detail was it that you were that you were investigating at
1: that point so a lot of a lot of the drone work when it comes to sea turtle conservation is completely unwritten now there's just a lot more um a lot more people using it in fact you can find it just about in every sea turtle program but at that time in 2014 there was there was no precedence. There was no. There was no roadmap for how to apply drones to your sea turtle conservation program. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of making it up and just poking around to see what would happen. So from those initial invest those initial attempts to see how could the drone help us we accidentally started flying over other species of, of adult turtles so green turtles and kemp's ridley turtles mm-hmm. and so this was this was all proof of concept mm-hmm. so by this point also um dji the the company that was making the drones that we were using including the phantom mm-hmm. had come out with not only another line another model of drone the inspire but it came out with several other types of Inspire and Phantom models. So we we started upgrading, and I think we had gone through three different Phantoms, so now we were up to the Phantom three, and we started flying over adult turtles. And that's when we started noticing that this was an incredibly useful platform for studying behavior. It, crystal clear, beautiful video definition of mating behavior, and it was from a, an aerial perspective, and that's a perspective that we don't have. In the sea turtle world, yes, you have people who fly fly airplanes over turtles just to do counts or to count turtles in the water. Mm-hmm. But never before have we had an aerial perspective of behavior mm-hmm. and in this kind of detail. Yes. So that was what led to um, one of the, the one of my chapters. It became a chapter of my PhD. But one of my studies, which was looking at courtship and mating behavior and assessing the different specific behaviors that we were observing, and it it opens the door for a whole new realm of of study because mm-hmm. now we can compare populations and look at which behaviors are really important because we find them in every turtle population. Wow. So, we were noticing that there were same, the same behaviors that had been observed for the green turtles over in Australia. Mm-hmm. And that's halfway around the world, totally different population, but they were doing the same things. Oh, wow. And that's what was really interesting. Yeah, that is. So that was that was the, the first big study that we were able to to use with the drone and it it further it demonstrated to the sea turtle community hey this is a really useful platform for a lot of studies yeah. so it just from there it just exploded like the number of people using drones what they were using them for was just phenomenal The it was an exponential yeah, <laughs> growth yeah. rate right, the number of um, people using drones absolutely yeah so
0: you, you were using videos to capture maybe like the behaviors now did you ever use the platform to be able to map the coastline just to look and do counts or things like that or was that you were more focused on the behavior side of the the, the the research.
1: So the the mapping of the the beach itself and the using the the platform to then count the number of turtles or to look mm-hmm. at beach slope, beach profile, all of that stuff became more uh, available after we did that study. So we did branch into that mapping, you know, do, making a three D model of the beach of the coastline, and it, it's just. That direction developed after we finished that study. So now that's something that's more readily used um, in the field. That's yeah. something that down in Mexico they're also they're using it more frequently. They're looking at mapping the beach, and mm-hmm. I presume they're going to start looking at the elevation changes, the level of erosion, all of the, yeah. all of those things became more readily available once the software kind of caught up as well. So the software we were able to get access to. Initially, PIX4D was the first thing that we were able to to lock on onto. But then um, the price of PIX4D, the fact that I was a student, I started investigating Mm -hmm. other other software as well and kind of piecemealing what I needed to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, I think it would be interesting to learn, like, even with the mapping side of it, to be able to classify habitat preference for then... The sea turtles. it might, might be really interesting to, to kind of further invest because there's so many other new things that we can continue to do with drones, especially when we look at just traditionally now we're, we're talking about just RGB sensors, um, but like even the opportunity of deploying thermal sensors to look in, at behaviors during night and seeing like what they may be doing at night too, right? So there's a lot of opportunity to be able to use them, just not only for, yeah, for habitat yeah preference, so you can always use it for other things as well. So it's exciting opportunities. The industry is continuing to grow and like new research whether it's uh, turtles or seabirds or other types of mammals is there's, you know, the the opportunities are there. It's just being creative and putting your mind to, uh, to being able to deploy them. And I think that's a lot of it right now, especially in this industry is like trying to, Think creatively of what, what you can use them for, but also um, trying to create a new uh, a way of doing it efficiently and effectively, basically supplementing maybe traditional methods that may be more time-consuming, and, and uh, I think drones definitely differentiate itself and create opportunity, so it's really exciting, definitely. Um, yeah, so tell us a little bit, I guess, about what you're up to next. Now, I, you just mentioned that you have some exciting things now that you finish your PhD and your some doors are opening for you, so yeah, just tell us a little bit about what your what your next steps are.
1: Yeah the I kind of ended my PhD on the note of my very last chapter that was was not just recognizing the potential that drones can can offer for a number of studies not just on sea turtles but a number of studies wildlife studies but then um also looking at the impact that drones are having so my my final study was was actually conducted over in Australia And I was doing a a fellowship over there, and I kind of fell into this project because I started noticing differences in the response to the disturbance of the drone. Mm -hmm. And so I started assessing the impact that the drone was having and and what's what's that minimum altitude you need to fly at in order to avoid disturbing things like crocodiles, shorebirds, and turtles. Mm -hmm. So that was – I loved the potential direction that that – would give me Mm -hmm. so I I would love to pursue something that involved further assessing like what impact the drones are having and how best to fly them so that we don't have we we minimize the impact we're having Mm because that's something that directly plays into the regulations that are going to surround how we use drones and how the permits we have to apply for all Mm -hmm. of that stuff is really important information yes Yes. so I would like to pursue that Um, I would I would absolutely love to continue that work over in Australia but Mm -hmm. getting back over there as either a postdoc or a Um, contract biologist or something like that is a little tricky. I'm working on it. (laughs) Um, In the meantime I'm probably, I'm going to end up picking up some work um, with that ecological consulting company down on the coast and I'm, I'm also looking at potential a potential lead out in the northern mariana islands I would, I would like to help them develop and enhance their sea turtle research program they need to expand it and and bring it up to speed because the level of tourism is skyrocketing over there so yeah. that's something that they were interested in and i just found out about that through a series of interviews i did related to the coastal management fellowship so Damn. there's lots of things there's a big blank slate yeah. and um it's it's an interesting position to be in to not have a direction necessarily to kind of have a, a a, a big open slate and you can just kind of, wander into whatever happens to, to work out. So yeah, it's absolutely. a little um nerve wracking, but it's also yeah. good. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely.
0: I think it's interesting, like you just mentioned like um like the, the behaviors of of uh, wildlife when the the proximity to the drone itself, because we've talked to a few other people on the show about, you know, their experience with different different types of wildlife, whether it's seabirds or or mammals, and just kinda like feeling out like maybe what their their, their preference was on it. And I know that there's been some some back and forth whether um, there's there's types of aircrafts that Cause different types of impacts um, and also proximity. And there was a, there was an interesting journal that came out. Um, I I'll have to reference the gentleman who, who published that article, but it was um, it was basically stating that in say wetlands um, all winged air all-winged vehicles actually at lower altitudes, around 60 meters, will cause some impact just because it looks like a bird, whereas you know, a larger aircraft with like a three meter wingspan actually can operate at that altitude without any impact because it doesn't look like a predator. Um, now, interesting, like when you mentioned that you've, you've done some of these studies with other types of, of wildlife, whether it's alligators or if it's uh, sea turtles, like is the quadcopter um, invasive at a particular height? Like is it causing some type of of disturbance to their behavior and it's visual. Um, and, and what kind of like, yeah, cause I'm curious to learn a little bit about maybe that some of the research that you had done there and, and what, uh, what aircraft seem to be causing the most impact.
1: So the, the aircraft that I used, that was one of the things that I was able to keep standard. I, I was only able to take one aircraft with okay. me and that I was allowed to fly. Yeah. So and that was the Phantom, Phantom four pro. Okay. And that's that one, uh, because that was the same aircraft I used on everything. Then that was, that was at least standardized, but yeah. the, um, what I was able to, to figure out was when the animals were exhibiting a behavioral response. Now this was of course a, an observed uh, behavioral response that was visual that we could see, we could detect from the drone. So mm-hmm. I know in, in the case of birds, there are other responses like blinking or certain head movements that are too fine-scale that we wouldn't necessarily be able to pick up from the air mm-hmm. with the drone. But what I was looking for was what at what altitude did we not see major behavioral changes? Mm-hmm. So either flushing of the of the flock or a portion of the flock of birds, or in the case of crocodiles, movement, head movement, which is when they're basking is not something you normally see. They just mm-hmm. sit there motionless. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of crocodiles in the water – submergence so Mm -hmm. they when they get really agitated they would just submerge Mm -hmm. so trying to figure out at what's what altitude are we seeing those major behavioral changes Mm -hmm. that was something that I that was the question I was focused on but what I would really like to to see and and to be a part of, I would love to be a part of this, is mm-hmm. teasing out whether it's a visual or an auditory cue, yeah. or whether it's something that they're detecting. Maybe they're seeing the shadow. Maybe yeah. they're maybe it's a shadow. Maybe it's the you know, change in the um, the water disturbance that yeah. they're detecting. Yeah,
0: or even so, the frequency, right? Yeah, like the humming yeah. that different types of yeah. platforms make, because we all know a larger yeah. larger platform, you know, it has that different yeah. type of deep hum and then of course like a smaller um quad it definitely has that higher pitch so yeah it would be interesting yeah definitely to see those yeah. three different those you almost need a, um, um, a multi-principle component analysis to try and yes. like, <laughs> determine exactly the, how they all kind of piece together
1: and and then of course throwing in the fact that you know for different species they're what they associate as a predator is going di- to be different. So with birds, of course, it makes sense that something flying like a quadcopter is going to look more like a predatory bird, mm-hmm. as opposed to for the for the crocodile. I don't know that it's necessarily that they're associating whatever they're detecting from the quadcopter as a predator or as a threat but mm. that's something that we would also have to to tease out you'd have to tease out you know the difference between the quadcopter flying versus a fixed mm. wing maybe even a kite something that doesn't <laughs> doesn't move yeah. something that's just up in the air but that mm. also casts a shadow so that's something that yeah. we would need to tease out as well
0: yeah definitely i think it's going to change for every different type of species because they're yeah. going to have um, a different level of i guess uh, defense mechanisms but also like some may may just be shy. Other ones might uh, might just get easily agitated. It's, it's it's so tough to tell. So like almost every species has to kind of be okay. um, varied, right? Because even if we look at birds, like the have the I guess the the behaviors between water certain types of waterfowl, and then yes. with looking at other types of like predatory birds, it's like it's the predatory birds that are the ones that, of course, as a pilot, you're the you want to stay away from because they're the ones that are more likely to attack. So you gotta, you gotta yeah, be wary. So sure like, <laughs> yes, yeah, so you're always keeping your eyes up in the sky, just hoping um, that they're not, you know, agitated. But like, of course, there are there are steps to take, especially when you're mapping, to be able to just stay at a higher altitude. Um, and I always say, like, I like, I like when it's at least 70 meters above. But I usually map large areas, so it's usually. 80 90 meters but um but i'm not in a position to like usually take a quad and, and and get quite close to certain types of wildlife and i know that um some of the research i've read especially says that when you're hovering over them that's when they get more agitated just because it's it's there longer and they're they're, they're not sure what it is but they're definitely they, they could be interested but they could also get spooked so it's 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 definitely something that with many different trials you're gonna have to kind of Um, piece out which one seems to be the most influential whether it be like the frequency or the or the the shading or what it'd be so it's very interesting yeah I think that'd be I think there's a lot of research that hopefully will go on in the next little bit to try and determine that but I think like as pilots we just need to be cautious and careful of their habitat and um, you know Bertie Gregory said like he he thinks it's more of like a um, more of like a a kind of a, a feeling like a sense from the pilot to be able to interact and as long as you know that species and you know it very well because you're interacting with it like quite often you know it's not just a measurement that's going to be the most the most significant indicator like you know um, depending on just some visual signs while you're operating um, within the first few minutes what what does seem to have some impact and I think at this point until the research comes out that's kind of what you kind of got to do is you just gotta you got to know what altitudes and what distances are, are ideal and be able to if you're going to be pushing those limits. Be able to know that species, and you're going to need to really know that species really well. Otherwise, you're just disturbing it, and you could cause some other issues down the road, um, which lead to other things, not just stress. But I know that some types of species, even uh, sea lions, and they they actually have uh, post traumatic distress distress from it, um, which is which is sad. So you've got to be careful because you know wildlife. Yeah. We want we want these populations to to, to continue to grow instead of. The opposite direction um, and that we do see some parts of the world right now and we don't want drones to be a part of that obviously so yeah so I think that's definitely opportunities.
1: Yeah that's and that's really the the moral of that that research is that it, it needs to be assessed each research project you need to assess that initially before you start the project. Yeah, yeah definitely definitely definitely
0: awesome. Well, it's great to learn all about your research and everything you've done. I, I found it fascinating to learn about the oil spill because honestly, that was very kept quiet from where I'm from and I didn't learn much about it. And I think it's absolutely amazing the work that you're doing and le- uh, learning about sea turtles, obviously as a Canadian, uh, and, you know, in, in Central Canada, like I, you don't hear about sea turtles often. So I love knowing a little <laughs> bit about what there is uh, in the warmer places of the world and these majestic species. They, they live for so long and they're just uh, an incredible thing that hopefully at some point I'll be able to to get out and actually spend some time you know learning more about them but it's actually interesting to at least hear it from your perspective and the leading research that you're working on um i think it's absolutely fascinating i think drones are going to play a really big role in helping conserve these species and to protect them for many years to come so yeah so thank you so much for being on the show was it
1: Oh, an absolute pleasure to be on. Thank you so much for having me. And I agree. I look forward to seeing where the where this field heads in the future. And if you ever want to come down to a beach and just see some hatchlings or see a turtle lay its nest, you just let me know. You got okay. connections.
0: Sounds good. Thanks so much.
1: <laughs> thank Great. you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you. All right. That wraps up our 10th episode of Drones on Air. I hope this podcast provides you with a better understanding on how sea turtles are being protected through the utilization of drones. We've learned a lot about how the technology can aid and support with understanding their behaviors in the water and the health of their habitats. If you have any questions about this podcast, please email me at ryan at Join us on May 27th for our next episode as we interview Dr. Ari Freelander, who is an associate professor at Oregon State University at the Marine Mammals Institute. We will travel back in time to Antarctica, where he conducted aerial imaging analytics uh, in Antarctica, whales which provides critical insight on the behaviors and health of these species. Make sure to follow us on social media at EnviroDrone and visit our website at envdrone.com.